بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله and welcome to this podcast series of a commentary on نهج البلاغة brought to you by Mizan Institute ومن قال فيما فقد ضمنه ومن قال على ما فقد أخلى منه كائن لا عن حدث موجود لا عن عدم مع كل شيء لا بمقارنة وغير كل شيء لا بمزايلة In this first section of the first sermon of Nahj al-Balagha we were getting a lot of lessons from Imam Ali regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala our understanding of him, how we can describe him and how no matter how hard we try we're just too limited to be able to use the right words to describe him attributing qualities to him sometimes will come with baggage of restriction and limitation and so on this part of the first uh, section of the first khutbah as well the imam continues with five more points you can say in regards to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which he gets very particular and specific about allah and his tawheed and how we need to be careful in our understanding of him he begins by saying وَمَنْ قَالَ فِيمَا فَقَدْ ضَمَّنَهُ That whosoever says In what does Allah exist? In what is Allah located? A person who asks such a question This question is going to be an erroneous one to begin with. Why? فَقَدْ ضَمَّنَهُ The Imam here responds with one word The verb of ضَمَّنَهُ a person who asks such a question, this shows that they are containing Allah in something in their mind. And as a result, they're asking, okay, what is the container that holds him? In what is he, is he settled in? In what is he, does he exist? And so this itself is going to be a problem. Now it's interesting that Imam Ali here, he doesn't necessarily say what the problem is and you know open it up too much. All he says is, they have contained God. In other words, you should understand by now that containing Allah within something is going to be a problem. Why? Because you are restricting Him to that boundary once again, to that container that is holding Him. That is such a limitation. That is such a weakness for one to be contained within something else and to be engulfed in something else. It just shows that you are not above and beyond everything else and that you encompass everything, but rather you are encompassed by other things. And that is all weakness, that is all restriction and limitation. Then the Imam goes on to say, وَمَنْ قَالَ عَلَى مَا فَقَدْ أَخْلَى مِنْهُ That if anyone ever asks, well, okay, you know what, let's not contain him and restrict him within something Let's not have a container, so to speak, for him in which he is situated. But rather, he's on top of things, right? So let's say, what is he situated on, not situated within? Yeah, so maybe this person who's asking this question understands that you're not supposed to contain God within anything. So it's better to say, what is he situated on? What is he standing on? But even then, Imam Ali, he says, whoever asks, on what does he exist? On what is he situated? Then there's going to be another problem. فَقَدْ أَخْلَى مِنْهُ This is going to also lead to restricting God still. Why? Because by saying this, 
by saying that he is situated on something, yeah, what you're actually implying, okay, is that there are other places that he's not going to be found. This is a relative term, by the way, to be on something, okay? Whenever you have something on something else, you will have something under something as well. All right, so now being above will imply such. All right, if God is situated on something, then what about under that same thing? Is he there too or not? If he's not there, then you have made, there is a space out there, there is a place out there which is devoid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which lacks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is not there. And Imam Ali points this out. He says, when you say that he does not exist, that he exists on something, then you are implying that there is a place that he does not exist in, that, it, that that place is devoid of him, and that is a problem itself. Once again, Imam Ali doesn't say, oh, this is a problem, this is restricting him. He just points out one thing just to remind us that, look, what we're believing will have this implication. This implication necessitates him, um, a place or space being devoid of him, and that's going to be a problem. So that's all he says, minhu, that this person, by saying such, and asking such a question, it just shows that they have the presumption of there being a place that God is not, does not exist. Okay, And we can understand that that will be a problem. That it itself will be a limitation. But now here someone might ask, a person who knows their stuff, will ask the question of, well, the Quran tells us that Allah is situated on certain things. That Allah has settled on certain things. What is that? The Quran says in Surah Taha, verse 5, Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa that the Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you, some will use the equivalent of beneficent the beneficent Allah settled upon the throne so there is a place that he is on some might conclude from this verse and of course I think it's pretty clear that these types of verses they are metaphorical that what it is saying here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the throne represents sovereignty. It represents authority and power and dominion. And so if a verse says that Allah, you know, he created, then he settled on the throne. Not that physically he had to climb a throne and then sit on top of it. No, these types of verses are those verses that the Quran refers to as mutashabihat. These are verses that can have different meanings. They can be metaphorical and figurative. And so they have to be seen and understood in light of definitive verses of the Qur'an that say there is nothing like Allah out there. Laysa kamithlihi shay, And so on. So uh, we, we don't have to necessarily take every single verse literally. Here, we are 100% sure Allah has no material uh, existence. And so him being on top of a throne does just does not make sense. And so we will take it as metaphorical without a doubt that here when it says Allah ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa that he settled on the throne what is meant is that Allah now has all dominion he has all authority and sovereignty and so he can uh, do as he pleases do as he wishes. Okay so that sums up the first point that the Imam has in regards to Allah in this part of the khutbah where he says Man qala fima wa man qala alama. Whoever asks, in what does he exist? Or asks, on what does he exist? In both cases, there's a problem there. And it will lead to Allah being restricted to a certain place and his limitation.
Now this had to do with place and space, right? Now we move on to him not even being limited when it comes to time. Ka'inun la an hadath mawjudun la an adam. Some of it will have to do with time. Here it says ka'inun, Allah exists. Okay, ka'in comes from the root of kaun, which means existence, to be. He exists la an hadathin. Not that something took place and then he existed. All right, so he exists, but don't see his existence the same way you see the existence of everything else out there. Something has to take place for him to come into existence. So for example, you know, you'll have you'll have a chair. Okay, the chair wasn't always there. It was a piece of wood before. And before it was a piece of wood, you know, it was a tree and so on. Before that, it was something else. So each of these things that comes into existence, comes into existence when something takes place. A hadath takes place. It says, don't think that Allah exists because something took place and then he existed from that, that point onwards on the timeline of time. No. It's not like that. So he is eternal and pre-eternal. He is azali and abadi. Or if something is going to be pre-eternal, they call it, that means that there was no starting point for it. Now for us, it's going to be hard to understand and digest this because we are material beings and we see everything through the lens of matter and material. And so matter and material with it will bring the baggage of time all the time. And It'll be hard for us to strip anything of time. Everything will be uh, restricted within the confines of time for us. And so if they tell us, Ka'inun la an hadath, it's going to be hard for us to picture this and understand it really. But we can at least theoretically and in our minds at least know that, okay, he exists, but there was no time that he came into existence because of something else happening. Something took place and now he exists. No, it's not like that. He exists because he exists. He exists because he is existence itself. He exists because he is not a being that needs to enjoy existence. Existence has to be given to it. No, he is existence itself. We kind of talked about this in previous sessions, about how certain qualities are not uh, qualities that Allah takes on, but rather they are his essence itself. Existence is one of them and is the main one actually. Alright, so ka'inun la an hadath. He exists not because of something taking place, making him something just like everything else. So if everything else, in, if we refer to other things as ka'in, existing, and then we also refer to Allah as ka'in and existing, these two will sound the same. But they have totally different meanings, meanings philosophically speaking. Alright. And then he goes on to say, Mawjudun la an Adam. So the second point that uh, the Imam is making about Allah is made of two parts. Ka'inun la an hadath that we covered. Mawjudun la an Adam. You can say Mawjud and Ka'in, they're synonymous, especially in this context. So he exists, but it's not that his existence is preceded by nothingness. In other words, once again, he was always there. Okay? Everything else we look at eventually will return to nothingness. Let's go back and use the same chair example. With the chair, as I said, or the table, all right, before it's a table, or it was wood. 
Where did the wood come from, from the tree? Where did the t- tree come from? Come from It came from the seed. Where did the seed come from? If you keep going back, you will eventually reach a point where it's just matter. And where did matter come from? It came from nothingness. One of the names of Allah is the Fatir. Fatir means to break something open, cut something open. And so when we when when the Quran refers to him as Fatir as Samawati wal Ard, the Mufassirin, those who do tafsir and commentary of the Quran, they say Fatir means that he brought it into existence from nothingness. It's one thing to build a chair from wood. Okay, you created a chair or a table from wood. But philosophically speaking, you didn't create that thing. That the, the the matter for it was there already. You just gave it another form, really. That's what you did. That is not creation in philosophy. Creation in philosophy, illiyah, causality, all of this stuff will go back to a point where there's nothingness, and then from nothingness comes something. Okay? Now, there is a whole discussion on the pre-eternal existence of even matter. That is a philosophical discussion I don't want to get into right now. All in all, all in all, everything out there will eventually trace back to non-existence. And that is what makes our creation and the creation of all of creation so special is that Allah did it from nothingness. He brought from nothingness something. He cut as if cut open, slit open, broke open nothingness. And from there, he brought out something and somethingness. That is a miracle itself. All right, so here it says, though, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if everything else exists in, in such a manner, that if you trace it back, it'll go to nothingness. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it will not go back to nothingness. Adam means nothingness. Adam means lack of existence. It says, mawjudun. Allah is mawjud, exists, has wujud. But not because it is preceded by non-existence the same way everything else is such. And so once again, if I refer to Allah as something, if I refer to Allah as an existent, something that has existence, just like I refer to everything else as mawjud. Yes, we have this in our in other languages. We say the mawjudat are like this, the mawjudat are like that. What does that mean? That means all existence, all creature, all, all creation, excuse me, all creatures. All right, well, I'm referring to Allah also as a mawjud. Just like I refer to everything else as a mawjud, these are, they sound the same, but they have different meanings completely if you look at them philosophically. One of them will go back to something that uh, will go back to non-existence, while Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never go back to non-existence. There will be never a time that he didn't exist and then had to come into existence. Alright, so that was the second point. Ka'inun la'an hadath, mawjudun la'an adam. Moving on to the third point. Ma'a kulli shay'in la bimuqarana wa ghayru kulli shay'in la bimuzayala. This one's kind of interesting. And um, those of you who have heard, it might even have a little bit uh, to do with wahdatul uh, wujud. Not that the imam is implying that, but this discussion might come up when explaining this uh, part of the khutbah. He says, Ma'a kulli shay'in la bimuqarana, which means he is with everything, but not because he is with everything and next to everything. Okay, when you place two things next to each other, there is taqarun, there is muqarana, as they say, between these two things. When two things are next to each other physically, 
All right. So, as I said, there will be this concept of wahdatul uh, wujud, the unity of existence, the oneness of existence. And there will be different approaches, different understandings. And I don't want to get into that right now, by the way, at all. But what I want to say is this, that some forms of wahdatul wujud or some understandings and interpretations of it will hold that there's only one existence and that is God's existence. That's it. As if nothing else exists. And there will be a maybe correct way of explaining this and an incorrect way of explaining it. Once again, as I said, this is a, it's a very technical discussion. We don't want to get into that at all. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is this. That it seems that Imam Ali here in this part of the khutbah is acknowledging that no, there are other things that exist as well. So you can't say that other things don't exist necessarily. As some, some, I'm not going to say all, but some who uh, adhere to the whole notion of Mahdatul Wujud might hold. Um, no, I, he's, it's as if he's saying, I acknowledge that there are other things out there as well. And other things have existence. Okay? But at the same time, I want you to know that it's not that they are separate from Allah such that Allah is not with them. No, Allah is with them. Allah is with everything. It's not like, okay, you know, me and this pencil, me and this pencil, we both exist, and the pencil can be 50 miles away from me. I'm not going to be with the pencil anymore. No, just because we all exist doesn't mean that we're going to always be together or always going to be separate. We can be together, we can be separate. But when it comes to Allah and other things, no. Allah is with everything all the time. Ma'a kulli shay. The Imam doesn't say sometimes. He says he's with with everything. So this means all the time as well. He is with everything all the time. But look, understand, just like how you and the pencil who are separate sometimes might get close to each other physically, the imam is saying, I don't mean that he's with them the same way you and this pencil are with each other, next to each other. La bimuqarana. If Allah is with everything, and I acknowledge there are other things out there that Allah is with, this withness, let's call it, being with them, is not a physical closeness. Muqarana. No. Alright, so Allah is with everything and He's not next to everything physically, but He's with everything at the same time. Okay, so let's just say they're one thing. Why say they're two things and, and, and then get in, in trouble like this? Someone might ask. You're saying that He is with everything, but not physically next to it. Okay, that means that they're one thing then. How can two things be with each other but not next to each other? Except that they are not even two things to begin with. They are one thing. So someone might ask such a question and then the imam goes on. He says, وَغَيْرُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ He is, but at the same time, he is not the same as the rest of the things that are out there. Don't think they are one thing. وَغَيْرُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ He is other than everything out there. He is not the same thing as everything else out there. So if he's with everything, he's not the same as them. He is not the same as them. He is other than them. That's very cool. Okay. So he is other than them. But look, once again, us as people, us as material beings, when something is other than something else, the first thing that will come to our mind is that, okay, these are two things. Two things equal separation and distance between them. No matter how small the distance, but they are not going to be the same thing. They're going to be separate from each other, correct? So are you saying that Allah is separate from everyone and everything? لا بمزايلة 
he is other than everything else, but not via separation, not through separation. So you see, brothers and sisters, you feel like there's a lot of oxymorons here. And there's These are antithetical notions that are coming all together and, and, and can be found within Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Otherness usually implies separation, distance, right? But here it says, no, otherness of Allah with everything else is different than the otherness that you are accustomed to, the way you understand it. No, it's not like that. So him being with everything is different than the way we understand it. And him being other than everything is different than the way we are accustomed to and understand it. I personally find this part of the khutbah very interesting. That it just it's just that we can't understand Allah in any way, the way He really is. There is no way for us to really understand Him. These words are all going against each other, someone might say. Like, these are, these are opposites, total opposites, contradicting each other as if. He's with them, but He's not next to them. He is other than them, but not that He's separate from them. What is this saying? All I'm getting from all of this, brothers and sisters, and I think that the Imam is trying to point this out to us, is that, look, you will understand Him to an extent, but understand that your understanding is not an accurate one, because He's just so great. Alright, so let's move on to the fourth point. So that was the third one. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is ma'a kulli shay'in la bimuqaranah wa ghayru kulli shay'in la bimuzayala. And I hope we are appreciating how the Imam is eloquently speaking here. And these words are, are rhyming with each other, some of them. Alright, fourth point about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fa'ilun la bima'na al-harakati wal-ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a fa'il. He is a doer. He gets things done. Well, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, how do we get things done in this life? What we do is we get up, we work, there's motion, movement involved. Sometimes we do things on our own, sometimes we have to use tools, yes, and get help from other things. It says, he is a doer. He is getting stuff done all the time. In the Quran it says, every moment, every day, he is at work doing something, getting work done. Of course, that kind of work, once again, what, what is that work exactly? It's not like our work. We should never compare those two. But it's saying that he's actively involved in everything. All right, so if he's a doer, he's getting stuff done. Is it like us? Of course it's not. So the Imam makes that clear. La bima'na al-harakat. He's a doer, but not that there is any haraka, motion and movement involved. Why? Because he doesn't have a, a, a material body to begin with. Motion and movement, yes, is something that has to do with material beings. Allah is not material. So no haraka and movement there. Number one. Number two, or maybe he doesn't have to move, but maybe he needs to get help from other things. The answer is that no. He doesn't ha need any help. For, he doesn't use tools or anything like that. Think about it, brothers and sisters. If he is the creator to begin with and brings everything from nothingness, if we go back all the way to the beginning of creation, okay? If he is the one who is supposed to create from nothing, that means there is nothing other than him that exists. So there are no tools for him to use and employ to get work done, i.e. creation. Okay, if he wants to create, all right, it's not like he's going to look for a tool to create because it goes back to a time when there was nothing to begin with. 
So it just doesn't make sense for him to need tools for him to create. Okay, That is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, okay, if he is the all-powerful, the immaculate, he doesn't need tools because that would go against him being the all-powerful, almighty. Yeah, The fact that he is in need of anything for anything that he wants to do. So that's another way to look at it. So once again, either we can look at it like this and say, if we go back in time, this it's a discrepancy to say that he needs tools to get work done because we believe that there was a time, so to speak, of course, I'm speaking very loosely here, there was a time that there was nothing. And so if, and so if he's going to create from nothing, that means there's no tools either for him to use. Nothing that can help him. He has to start from scratch somewhere. So he doesn't need, he, he never needs tools to begin with. Number one, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that if he was ever in need of anything, any help, any aid, that goes against him being the all-powerful and the almighty. All right, let's go to the last point now. So that was the fourth point. Uh, As for the fifth one, that he is basir, he is all-seeing, even when there was nothing of his creation that can be looked at. In other words, before he even created anything that is seeable, let's call it. So basir comes from the root of basar and seeing, and, and seeing with the eyes, of course. Okay, But what's for sure is that this is a metaphorical line. And when Allah is referred to as basir, seeing, it doesn't mean that he's actually seeing, because seeing means you have to have an eye. So what is meant here is that having knowledge of whatever is seeable, all right, anything that we can see as human beings with our eyes, or any other creature can see with its physical eye, let's say, Allah will have knowledge of that thing. What's interesting though, it says that he had knowledge of that. Okay, so basir here means having knowledge of things that can be seen. He has knowledge of those things even before they were created. Even before there was anything seeable. How does that work? Because you can only have knowledge of things that actually exist. If you have knowledge of things in the future that don't exist right now, that's not actual knowledge, some might argue. So the answer that can be given is this, that what is meant here may be one of two things. That he has knowledge of all things before they're created, those things that will be seeable even. Before they're created, meaning he knows that they will come into existence in the future. Either that, or no, he has what it takes. He has the potential to have knowledge of anything out there. Even before it's created, he can have knowledge of it when it is created. Yes. And so, all in all, this is referring to his immaculate knowledge. Allah will have knowledge of all things even before they are created in this sense. The fact that he can have knowledge of it right when it, is, when, when it comes into existence. Or that he know he knows what is going to be created in the future. All right. So this uh, this is the last part of this part of the khutbah. He he ends with this. He says, "Mutawahidun idla sakana yastanisu bihi, wala yastawhishu lifaqdihi." That Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is alone. Let's call it mutawahid. Now I did check um, other translations. And they said that, you know, the English translation, the famous English translation here says he is one. But I want to say he is, when you look at some of the Farsi literature translating and commentating on this part of the khutbah, they are using the word of being alone. 
And I would say I, I like this one more because it fits the context more. Because when you look at the um, when you look at the end of the sentence that the Imam says here, he says, "La sakana yastanisu bihi wala yastawhishu li faqdihi." It has to do with loneliness. It has to do with having someone that you can find tranquility in, calmness in. When you're alone, you're afraid. Unless you have someone next to you, then you don't feel lonely anymore. So here, it might sound like it's uh, you know a deficiency. God is feeling lonely as if. But no, let me explain this and what I'm getting out of this based on the literature that I just mentioned. Is that he said it's saying that he's alone. Well, who do you call a lone person? How do you how do you how does someone qualify as lonely? Let's say. How is that possible? Well, when they don't have anyone with them, and they feel lonely, they're worried, they're scared, fearful, things like that, because they're alone and there's no one next to them to take them in their arms, to give them their shoulder that they can, you know, uh, find peace and calm and tranquility in. Okay. That is what a lonely person looks like, okay? The thing is though, with God, He is He is mutawahid. He is alone. Why? Because there is no one out there that can give Him that peace and calm. Why? Because He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it to begin with. And there is no one out there who Allah will feel scared and fearful because that person is not there anymore for Him. Usually, a person is lonely because there is someone out there that when they are with them, they don't feel scared anymore. They don't feel they're not frightened anymore. Yeah, but with Allah, there is no such thing to begin with. There is no one out there that can make him feel good, that can give him calm and tranquility and peace. There is no one out there that if that person is not there, then Allah is fearful now, scared, feels lonely. So Allah is alone, but not alone. Because he needs someone like this. There is no one out there that qualifies for such when it comes to Allah. Allah doesn't need something like that. So he is alone because that person is not there. But not because he needs them. But because there is no such thing when it comes to Allah. So this goes back to, once again, us understanding the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And his perfection, his greatness. A person who, or an entity who is deficient, who is in need, will be alone. Okay, Allah though is alone, He is one, but not because of this reason that we might be alone and lonely. No, because there is no such thing out there for Allah, because Allah doesn't have such a need to begin with. That there's, oh, I need someone else, so like, okay, let me make sure that he or she is there so that I'm not alone anymore. No, Allah is alone, but not the same way others are alone. Others are alone when there is no one when there is someone out there that they need but just is not next to them. For Allah, Allah is Allah is alone because there is no one out there that he needs to be next to him. And so he's going to be the one and only, the unique, the only one, the lonely one, but not in a bad way, not in a deficient way, rather in the best way possible. Because of his perfection, he is alone. So in other words, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this line. Him being perfect equals him being alone. Him being perfect perfect equals him not being in need at all equals him being alone. And as a result, he is above everything and not in need of anyone or anything.
So no matter how cool, awesome, famous, wealthy you are, you will need company. And being alone will eventually scare or hurt you unless you are God. In a nutshell, that's what is happening here. This concludes this part of the khutbah, which the imam, he made sure, I would say, <laughs> it's like, you know, when you um, when you put iron in a furnace and then you bring that iron out when it's red hot and you beat it so that all impurities and all garbage comes out from that iron and makes it strong and makes it refined and pure. Kind of like that, like what's Imam, what Imam Ali is doing here is like, he is really beating up our perception of God, getting rid of all the impurities that might be in there. It's beautiful. I really, really love this part of the khutbah. Just so far from the beginning of the khutbah till here, the tawheed that, imam, that the Imam paints for us, that picture of tawheed that he paints is really beautiful. And so from here on, the Imam continues. He moves on into how Allah's creation is and the greatness of Allah when it comes to His creation. Inshallah in our next episode. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.